This is a special edition of the Read Aloud Revival podcast. Some authors and illustrators deserve, well, extra attention. If you see their books on a bookshelf, at a garage sale, at the library, pretty much anywhere, you should just pick them up and read them. Read them on your own, read them to the kids in your life, no matter which book it is. And the authors and illustrators behind these kinds of books fascinate me. In this special edition podcast, we're meeting the man behind Make Way for Ducklings, Blueberries for Sal, One Morning in Maine, Time of Wonder, Homer Price, and others. Yes, indeed. You've got a special edition of the Read Aloud Revival. I'm your host, Sarah McKenzie. And friends, I want to introduce you to Robert McCloskey. Mr. and Mrs. Mallard were looking for a place to live. But every time Mr. Mallard saw what looked like a nice place, Mrs. Mallard said it was no good. There were sure to be foxes in the woods or turtles in the water, and she was not going to raise a family where there might be foxes or turtles. So they flew on and on. When they got to Boston, they felt too tired to fly any further. There was a nice pond in the public garden with a little island on it. The very place to spend the night, quacked Mr. Mallard. So down they flapped. Next morning, they fished for their breakfast in the mud at the bottom of the pond. But they didn't find much. Just as they were getting ready to start on their way, a strange, enormous bird came by. It was pushing a boat full of people and there was a man sitting on its back. Good morning, quacked Mr. Mallard, being polite. The big bird was too proud to answer. But the people on the boat threw peanuts in the water, so the Mallards followed them all round the pond and got another breakfast, better than the first. I like this place, said Mrs. Mallard, as they climbed out on the bank and waddled along. Why don't we build a nest? and raise our ducklings right in this pond. There are no foxes, and no turtles, and the people feed us peanuts. What could be better? Good, said Mr. Mallard, delighted that at last Mrs. Mallard had found a place that suited her. But... Look out! squawked Mrs. Mallard, all of a dither. You'll get run over! And when she got her breath... She added, this is not a place for babies, with all those horrid things rushing about. We'll have to look somewhere else. So begins one of the most celebrated picture books of all time. Chances are you've heard this story before. Chances are you've seen its illustrations. 
Make Way for Ducklings is arguably one of the most well-known picture books ever created. And the ducks that grace its pages, Mr. Mallard, Mrs. Mallard, Jack, Cack, Lack, Mac, Knack, Whack, Pack, and Quack would not only delight children over several generations, they would also go on to become permanent sculptures fixed in the Boston Public Garden and even make way for international diplomacy as part of the START Treaty between the U.S. and the USSR in 1991. A picture book is a powerful piece of art. You'll be certain enough of that by the end of this episode. Now, let's take a closer look at the man behind the ducks. Oh, there he is. Do you see him? Rather unassuming, right? Quiet, hauling groceries from his boat in Penobscot Bay off the shore of Maine. He lives on a private island there, so he's got to haul everything in and out by foot. Enough groceries and supplies for his family of four, his wife Peggy, and their daughters, Sal and Jane. Ah, Sal and Jane. Yes, you know them too. If you've ever read Blueberries for Sal or One Morning in Maine, the girls show up time and time again in his stories. Although perhaps showing up is not the right way to say that. It seems the stories bloomed from the girl's very existence, doesn't it? The man on the dock stops now and again. He looks at the gulls passing over, the dinghies bobbing in the water, the swirl of clouds as the weather changes more. And he's not looking at any of these things the way most of us look at them. No, he is seeing them seeing them with accuracy and artistic vision in a way most of us have never seen a thing in our lives. And once he's done hauling these groceries, he'll batten down the hatches against the New England storm and head back to his sketchbook to see all of it again, even more clearly this time. He'll see the gulls passing overhead, the dinghies bobbing in the water, the swirl of clouds, the very dock he hauled his groceries in on, But this time, they'll leap from his pencil onto his sketchbook. And this time, we will get to see what he sees. Because he'll put those drawings into books. And not a single one of them will go out of print, even decades later. Did I mention he's a private man? Well, there he goes, up to his house to love on his family, to sketch what he sees, to make stories. He never really set out to become a children's book writer and illustrator. He never set out to become famous for his illustrations and picture books. No, he didn't set out that way at all. Let's take a moment to go way back to when he was born, September 1914. Robert McCloskey, known by everyone in his life as Bob, was born and raised in Hamilton, Ohio. He grew up tinkering with clocks and old motors, taking things apart and putting them back together. He played multiple musical instruments, including the piano, the drums, the oboe, and of course, 
the harmonica. He was skilled at a great many things. He invented, for example, the Christmas tree at his house actually revolved. It spun around on a contraption Bob created as a child. He made a machine that some remember as a taffy maker and others as a contraption to whip cream. But suffice it to say, a pattern of the Milky Way galaxy spattered all over his mother's kitchen as a result of that particular childhood invention. He carved wood into totem poles, carving soap into, well, all sorts of things. In fact, he taught others to do the same. He was pretty young when he started teaching soap carving at the YMCA, and things didn't always go exactly according to plan. My father, from a young age, was pretty artistic, and he belonged to the YMCA in town, and they recognized it, and they had him teach a class in how to carve soap. That's Jane. Bob's youngest daughter. You know her if you've ever read One Morning in Maine or Time of Wonder. She's the younger sister in the McCloskey house, and she's Bob's daughter. He'd have these little kids, and Bob was maybe 14, 15, 16, and these little kids were seven, eight, nine. There was one little boy who was wiggling, and finally he, he raised his hand and he said, can I go to the bathroom? And, well, they were on the fourth floor of the of the. YMCA, and Bob said, sure. So the kid got out to the edge of the hall, but he had to go down a flight to to get to the bathroom, and he decided he couldn't do it. So he opened his fly, and on the landing of the fourth floor, he peed over the edge. It went down four floors, and it landed on the fuse box. (laughs) All the lights went out, and they all had to have an exit to get out of the building just to be safe. Kind of sounds like something that would happen to Homer Price, doesn't it? Bob wanted to be an artist. He went to Vesper George Art School in Boston, walking, it turns out, through Boston Public Garden on his way home from school every day. And he was a very accomplished artist, indeed. Listen to what Regina Hayes, the former editor-at-large at Viking, Bob's publisher, had to say about his early days. Bob in his youth was a big deal, I must say. He was a protege of Paul Manship. Did you know that? Paul Manship did the Prometheus, you know, at Rockefeller Center, and the Caryatids on the bridge in Washington. And then he won the Prix de Rome, which he wasn't able to take until after the war. For a young man like that, it, it, that was quite impressive. And, you know, he had a studio on Washington Square, and it was in the same building that Edward Hopper and Guy Pendebois had studios. I mean, so Bob was, he was not just, I don't even know how to put it, he wasn't just an unknown illustrator. He was clearly a very upcoming artist. Here's what went down. It's about 1939-1940. Bob has graduated from art school and brought his portfolio to New York City to show it to an editor. He got lost on the way. It was raining a lot. Torrential downpour from the way Bob spoke about it. He's all turned around and can't find his way. But finally, he makes his way to the Viking office and shows his limp collection of damp art to the editor there, May Massey. 
Oh, May Massey. She deserves an episode of her own. For now, we'll have to suffice it to say that she was easily one of the world's most influential and talented children's book editors. She brought us Madeline, the story about Ping, the story of Ferdinand, others too. Well, on this particular day, she told Bob to go home and draw what he saw, to stop trying to be a highbrow artist with inky black etchings of Pegasus and dark, mysterious undertones, and just draw what he saw, draw how he saw. So he did. Here's what his daughter Jane had to say. He found writing hard. I mean, he had a few deep uh, felt inspirations and he made books out of them. But, you know, some people wrote hundreds of books. My father wrote something like eight. I mean, it, uh, it took him, what, 30 years to write eight books. But he, I think he felt he had to uh, conserve his um, artistic inspiration and he thought that it was dissipated by talking about it. Bob drew from his own personal experience thereafter. And you can see it. From the boy lentil practicing his harmonica in the bathtub, where the tone is improved 100%, to the invention of a donut machine in Homer Price. From those friendly, happy streets in Ohio, he committed to drawing as accurately as he saw. He was living in New York now, rooming with another illustrator you may know, Mark Simont. He's most well-known as the original illustrator of the Nate the Great books, and he's also winner of the Caldecott Medal for A Tree is Nice. On a trip to Boston, Bob found himself sitting once more in Boston Public Garden, where he used to walk through every day. And it was all there, like it was waiting for him. The policemen, the kids on bikes, the swan boats, the ducks. The story didn't come to him right away, and neither did the duck drawings. He famously went to Washington Market in New York and brought home four new quacking roommates who raised, Mark said later, quite a racket. Bob even gave them a little something special to drink to slow them down so he could get a good look at them long enough to draw them. They'd fling feathers and splash water around the tub and make a general ruckus in their apartment. But the book that came out of him next was worth it. It was Make Way for Ducklings, and the world loved it. He won a Caldecott medal, even though he didn't know what that was at the time he won it. Bob was married now to a children's librarian, and it's about 1941. You might be able to imagine what happens next. 1941? Yeah. Robert McCloskey went to war. He kept drawing and telling stories, even while serving in the military. And when he came home, he kept making books. The world loved his ducks. They loved him. He was really overwhelmed by people's attention. And the fact that they sort of had this affection for him and and that he was called upon to respond, it was almost too much for him. That was Regina Hayes again. Remember, she's the former editor-at-large at Viking. She told me this story from his later years when the American Library Association wanted to honor Bob at a big event in Atlanta. So we were there at the Newbury Caldecott dinner in this huge ballroom, you know, filled with people. 
and Bob had come down for the uh, convention. And they started to read, 50 years ago today, a family of ducklings, and the whole room, they didn't wait for them to go any further, the whole room stood up applauding. I tell you, we all got so teary-eyed. It was really just an amazingly touching occasion. And so they gave Bob a citation. And so the next morning, he was going to sign at the convention. We were there in the booth with everything set up. And they opened the doors. And all of a sudden, we heard what sounded like a stampede of buffalo. We heard all these people running down the aisle to get to him before, you know, anybody else. He just signed and signed and signed until finally the time was up and he was just too tired. He had to go home, even though there were lots more people who would have liked to see him. It was so hard for him, so hard. Because you'd have to remember what an isolated life he led, you know, really quiet, isolated. Um, But he really did rise to the occasion because I can't remember it was that same year. I wish I could look up the the actual dates, but he was invited to speak at the American Booksellers uh, Breakfast. And we were supposed to meet him the night before because there was always a dinner before. And so our marketing director and I were sitting in the lobby waiting. We were supposed to meet him, I think, at 5.30 or 6, 7, 8, 8.30 came, and Bob hadn't turned up. And uh, finally, he came wandering in, and this kindly lady had recognized him. He had gone to the wrong hotel, but she took him in hand and brought him to the right hotel, and uh, they had lost his luggage on the plane. He was wearing this really ratty old sweater, and he had, as I said, no luggage. So we went to the gift shop at the hotel, which, of course, was outrageously overpriced, and bought him a shirt and um, socks and underwear and things like that. He said they were the best socks he ever had, <laughs> as they, they jolly well should have been. <laughs> so he appeared the next morning for the breakfast, and he's in all his beautiful new shirt and so forth, but he's put the ratty sweater all over the whole thing. Over the whole thing, he said, I just couldn't stand up in front of all those people with just a thin shirt between me and them. (laughs) But he absolutely charmed the audience, of course. Bob, like I said, was a private man, and he and his wife and two daughters were now living on a private island in Maine. Scott's Island, oh, what a magnificent place. It's not a very large island. You can walk around it quite easily. And the house was perched quite high. It overlooked the Egamogan Reach, which is this absolutely magnificent stretch of water. And often you see they have clipper ships that come from the main Maritime Academy. They train, you know, the uh, young students on, and um, it, they would come by and you would just think, oh, my Lord, I'm transported to another century, you know, because there was nothing that, that brought you back to the contemporary world. And you'd see these fabulous ships going by, this beautiful stretch of water. Um, so it was quite a magical place. He actually picked us up at the dock at Deer Isle, and we went by boat out to the island. And he told us, and I think it was the first winter that they spent there, it was one of the coldest winters on record, and the the bay froze. And he walked all the way from the island back to Deer Isle on the bay because it was completely frozen. 
to get supplies. Isn't that amazing? You can probably almost see the island, right? You probably have if you've seen Bob's book, Time of Wonder. Now, they didn't live at the island year-round, but I asked his youngest daughter, Jane, what one of her favorite island memories with her dad was. He bought a model, of an old jalopy, when I was about eight years old, and uh, we had to get two cars up to Maine, and my father was anxious and ready to go. And my mom had to collect some stuff and thought my sister ought to finish school. And so my father just picked up and left with me. And we went up to uh, Maine and uh, we stopped at Mystic Sea Port Museum and saw the the whaling boats. And we stopped in Boston and saw old Ironsides. And we drove up the coast and we saw Moody's uh, Diner, which is a, a great Maine landmark and we stopped and we saw Perry's Nut House it's another great main landmark and then we came to the island and and we sort of played house for a couple of days and I made beds and he, he cooked uh, spaghetti and hot dogs and we had a great time <laughs> it was, and and then my sister and mother came up and I, just about the time I was missing them and, and we came back to being a family it was, it was fun In 1987, a sculptor named Nancy Schoen took on the project of bringing those ducks everyone loved on the page to life so that kids could touch them, climb on them, interact with them right there in Boston Public Garden. Now, at the time of this recording, Nancy Schoen is 93 years old, and she is a dynamo. She's made sculptures for hospitals, public parks, the famous tortoise and the hare at Copley Square, the finish line for the Boston Marathon. She's so accomplished and all of her art is really breathtaking. What she's most famous for are Bob's ducks. I got on the phone with her to hear all about this project. My husband, he had the Ford chair at MIT in urban studies and planning. When the new dean of architecture and urban planning came to Boston from, actually from England, um, we entertained them because that's what you do when new faculty come and so forth. Turned out that the wife was interested in how children, she was an urban planner herself, and she was interested in how children use the city. Anyway, we entertained them, and she saw what I was doing, and we started doing some projects together. And then they came with their six- or seven-year-old twin boys as newcomers to the city. They walked around, and they went into the public garden. And it just happened that the boys knew the book, Make Way for Ducklings. So when they went into the public garden, they said, Mommy, where are the ducks? (laughs) She said, you know, Nancy, we really have to put those ducks in the Boston Public Garden. And I said, you're crazy. It's First of all, it's sacred ground, and we can't do anything like that. Well, she was very persistent. We couldn't do anything like this without Robert McCloskey. And uh, the strange thing is that I had a very good friend who was a very good friend of Robert McCloskey's up in Maine. (laughs) I told her what we were thinking about, and she called Bob, and she said, told him, and he said, well, I can't wait to meet who are these wonderful women. 
So he was coming down from Maine, and I, in turn, made a maquette. This is what I do before I do a commission. I make a small maquette, a model. So Bob and his wife, Peggy, made their way to Boston and saw this maquette, this model of the sculpture of the ducklings, and they liked them. Also, Nancy mentioned that when Bob and Peggy climbed out of the car, (laughs) they looked like they were coming right out of the pages of one of his picture books. (laughs) I love that. At this point, Nancy needed to make some draft ducks out of clay, the right size, the actual size that the sculpture would be in the garden. She needed to make some larger sculptures. And Bob said, yeah, why don't you go ahead and do that? And I'll come back and look at them. At the time, Nancy's studio was at a school, and right behind that studio was a nursery school. On the day that Bob and Peggy came to look at the draft ducks, Nancy took her draft ducks, these large clay sculpture models, and took them outside. As we were looking at them outside, three or four little kids came by to go to their nursery school. And they ran to the ducks. Nobody asked them to run to them, but they ran to these clay draft ducks. And they started patting them, and they started hugging them. <laughs> and this was a moment, and Mrs. Mrs. McCloskey and Mr. We all looked at each other. Suzanne was there, too. Uh, and, you know, we knew this moment had arrived. And I don't know that I said this to Nancy when I spoke to her, But she's listening to this, so I'll tell her now. In the presence of friends, Nancy, you gave a tremendous gift to the world with your ducks. You know that? Kids love them. Kids can't walk by them in Boston Public Garden without saying hello. They just beckon. And you gave Bob a gift, too, because you gave him a way to reach out to his young readers, even from afar. Even when he might not have been able to do it in person— He did it through the ducks, your ducks, the bronze ducks in Boston Public Garden, even today. I don't do a sculpture for myself. I do a sculpture that is appropriate for wherever it's going. Public art is wonderful because it's available 24 hours all the time. It's free. Anybody can see it. You don't have to be educated. You can just enjoy it. And you could sit on it or touch it or feel it. or It's it's a very personal sort of thing, whereas um, nothing wrong with museums. I believe in them, but it, they close and you can't touch anything. And they're very impersonal. On my last visit to Boston, I hung for a while at the duck sculpture. Really, you can't walk by those without seeing a child pulled to them as if they were giant magnets. For the 75th anniversary of Make Way for Ducklings, Viking released a special edition of the book that contained a beautiful, large map of Boston Public Gardens circa 1941, illustrated by the award-winning artist Paul Zielinski. Now, Paul never got a chance to meet Bob before Bob passed away, but Make Way for Ducklings had long been a favorite of his own. I asked him, What did it feel like to be asked to make this map for the special 75th anniversary edition of Make Way for Ducklings? Well, my first reaction was joy. You know, I I love this book a lot. And and, and I've also, um, you know, the chance to be sort of joined up with it was very exciting. 
Every year at the Boston Public Garden, centered around those beloved sculptures created by Nancy Schoen, there is a Duckling Day Parade. And Paul Zielinski, in fact, has gone. He told me about his experience. Sally McCloskey was there and she joined us and we had we were part of the Duckling Parade. It was wonderful. All these kids dressed up as ducklings or carrying duckling toys or both. And uh, I made a very, very tall stovepipe hat out of one or two of the posters rolled up into a cylinder attached with the brim of a real hat. Sally dressed up as herself in overalls and she was dressed straight out of blueberries for Sal. And she carried a bucket and a small toy bear. (laughs) And the two of us uh, marched at the head of the parade. I asked Paul Zielinski, what would you have asked Bob if you ever had the chance to meet him in person? I would have been intimidated, I suppose, and not know what to say to him. You know, when it's somebody whose books you grew up with, that it's a very different thing from somebody you just admired as an artist. What was he like? Robert McCloskey, this mysterious, quiet, private man who worked wonders with his art, who moved everyone who saw it, who captured the world with a rather unassuming family of ducks. I asked Gary Schmidt, you know Gary Schmidt, or at least I hope you do. We recommend so many of his books. He is just a brilliant writer. The Wednesday Wars, okay for now. So way back in 1990, Gary Schmidt wrote a biography about Robert McCloskey, which, of course, I read cover to cover as soon as I got my hands on it. While he was writing this biography, Gary went out to Scotts Island, where Bob lived, and interviewed him. My daughter, my third child, my daughter Rebecca, had just been born. She was two weeks old. So we drove out in a van, and then we got there. And I was supposed to meet him at a certain time at the post office um, in, I think it was Bucksport. And he didn't show, he didn't show, he didn't show. And I went into the uh, post office and I said, you know, because there's no phone at that time over there. And he said, oh, yeah, sometimes he comes, sometimes he doesn't. (laughs) But he did come. He finally did come. Um, And we went in his boat over to the island. And it was quite amazing. It was just an amazing day. The kids... um, who were shy, very shy, were not with him. And I don't know what quality it was, but there was, uh, there was a time when, um, when he asked one of the kids if they wanted to go up to the house, and they would never in a million years have gone off with, them, with anyone. But they went with him, and he brought them up to the house, and Peggy was up there, and it was great. We sat for a couple of hours. If you look at Time of Wonder, there's that rock that juts out. That's where we ate lunch. So it was much more witted over. And then the, the beach down below is where the kids spent a lot of time while I was talking to, uh, to Bob. And it was, yeah, it was really kind of neat. Let's talk about that beach in Time of Wonder. Gary mentions that in the Caldecott award-winning book by Robert McCluskey, Time of Wonder, on page 22, 
there's a little something you can see. Go grab the book if you have a copy of it. And if not, you're going to have to check it out at the library so you can look and see for yourself. Listen in to what Gary told me about this one. We can see that there's a pail that is just outlined in that corner. And I said, that's so interesting. This is during the interview. I go, that's so interesting because what you're doing is that you want to show that there are all these toys and such that these kids are playing with, but you also don't want to clutter up the beach. And so you've given us this way of seeing both of those. You're just suggesting it. So, so sorry, what he does, he takes the book, he looks at it, he goes, no, no, I just forgot to fill that in. <laughs> And I was, what? what? You just forgot to fill that in? I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. And I don't think so. Um, I think I was right that he just wanted to suggest it, but he, <laughs> but he wasn't gonna, gonna go with all that highfalutin ex explanation. It was just, I just forgot to fill that in. He was shy and uh, introverted and a private person. He, he, uh, um, when he was younger, he was funny. And Homer Price and, and all his books, even later, uh, Burt Dow, you know, you can feel that humor underneath. He, he was tense. He was often tense. He was also a loving and gentle and kind person, but it was balanced with that tension. So it was a, um, it was an interesting mix. And he was talented. He was truly, I mean, I think he, he's a draftsman. I don't think he, anybody in his generation was a more competent draftsman than he was. Gentle, self-effacing, talented, incredibly visual, you know, seeing things that no one else would see. He always knew the right note to strike, and he always charmed everybody with his humility. And his delightful sense of humor, which was very quiet, you know, but just such fun. Just wish I'd known him longer. I wish he had been closer by. I just loved every interaction I had with him. Robert McCloskey had tremendous ability to draw. I mean, that guy drew like I don't know anybody else, really. He was quite extraordinary. He wouldn't have wanted us to make a shrine of him. He, he wanted the, the work to speak for itself and uh, let him hide behind the work. I think that's what he would like. Each of the books is tremendously affirming at the end and affirming of a family um, that, that, that come together. For a kid, this time, I mean, when you are four, five, six, seven, that time is eternal. Like you can't even imagine, you can't imagine not being like that. And I think he really, really captures that. So at the end of Make Way for Ducklings, like the whole thing is told in past tense until the very last page um, or next to the last page when he shifts to the present tense because it's the eternal notion of every day they get up and they do this and it's, this is happening right now. Nothing will change. For Bob, childhood was meant to be an exuberant joy and a time of wonder. He made books about the safety and security of family, the home as a kind of stalwart refuge in a big, wide, wonderful world. Robert McCloskey made eight books that he authored and illustrated and about 11 more that he illustrated written by someone else. I guess I wish at times 
that that we could appreciate in children's books again a kind of gentleness that that I see in him, where even the stories which could be dangerous aren't. I love that that you could have a story which is in the end extremely gentle. He said in one of his Caldecott acceptance speeches that he couldn't force any books. He had to wait for them to bubble up on their own. His final book, Burt Dow, Deep Waterman, was published in 1963, a full 40 years before Bob passed away. I don't know why he stopped making books. He kept that to himself. He was, you'll remember, a private man. But he kept painting for years and years for himself. His family found canvases tucked in odd corners and every which place after his passing. He made puppets, too. Complicated, impressive puppets. He kept creating, kept seeing, kept making. As Gary Schmidt says at the end of his biography about Robert McCloskey, in Bob's books, quote, the reader is drawn from sadness to joy, from despair to hope, from denial to affirmation. For in McCloskey's work, the ducklings are forever following the swan boats until they swim to their island nest. Sal and Jane are forever returning home to a bowl of clam chowder. Bert Dow is heading up the bay toward land. And the blue water sparkles all around, all around. And the blue water sparkles all around. I like to think that he's still out there and he's flying away like a seagull and he's going on to the next thing. It seems to me that the best way to end a podcast like this one, celebrating the life and work of such an amazing man, is to read the final words of his second Caldecott Award-winning book, Time of Wonder. Take a farewell look at the waves and sky. Take a farewell sniff of the salty sea. A little bit sad about the place you are leaving a little bit glad about the place you are going. It is a time of quiet wonder. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Sarah McKenzie, with special thanks to Jane McCloskey, Regina Hayes, Nancy Schoen, Gary Schmidt, and Paul Zielinski for their willingness to be featured on the show. And of course, with gratitude and thanks for the late Robert McCloskey himself for the gift he left us in all of his books. Thank you. Thank you, Robert McCloskey.
So many of us feel overwhelmed in our homeschool. There's a lot to do, and it feels like every child needs something a little different. The good news is, you are the best person on the planet to help your kids learn and grow, and home is the best place to fall in love with books. I'm Sarah McKenzie. I'm a homeschooling mother of six, the author of Teaching from Rest and the Read Aloud family, and I'm the host here on the Read Aloud Revival podcast. This podcast has been downloaded over 8 million times. And you know, I think it's because so many of us want the same things. We want our kids to be readers, to love reading. We want our homes to be warm and happy havens of learning and connection. We know that raising our kids is the most important work of our lives. That's kind of overwhelming, right? You are not alone. In Read Aloud Revival Premium, we offer family book clubs, a vibrant community, and Circle with Sarah coaching for you, the homeschooling mom, so you can teach from rest, homeschool with confidence, and raise kids who love to read. Our family book clubs are a game changer for your kids' relationship with books. We provide you with a family book club guide and an opportunity for your kids to meet the author or illustrator live on screen. So all you have to do is get the book, read it with your kids, and make those meaningful and lasting connections. They work for all ages, from your youngest kids to your teens. Every month, our community also gathers online for a circle with Sarah to get ideas and encouragement around creating the homeschooling life you crave. They're the most effective way I know to teach from rest and build a homeschool life you love. We want to help your kids fall in love with books, and we want to help you fall in love with homeschooling. Join us today at rarpremium.com.